VA Health and Benefits, official mobile app for VA Health and Benefits. VA's official mobile app is a smarter, more convenient way for veterans to manage and carry their VA Health and Benefits information. One veteran notes, I went into my local hardware store and logged into my VA mobile app. A quick glance at my phone showed them I was a veteran and I was able to get the veteran discount without any paperwork. It was easy and convenient. Download the app via the Apple Store at https colon forward slash forward slash apple dot co forward slash three uppercase j lowercase b lowercase k nine uppercase o lowercase l or download the app via the Google Play Store at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3 uppercase q 5 lowercase q 9 uppercase l 5Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio. I'm Marine Corps veteran Travis Partington. I'm your host. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hubazoo Network. You can find out more on hubazoo.com. I want to thank my sponsors, Choice ASAC of ASAC Real Estate, Army National Guard veteran Mark Holmes of Reapers Detailing and Power Washing, and my supporters, Super Savage Salad Dressing, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company. Now, if you're watching this, it is December 12th. This is when this show is dropping. And this is going to be in the series about Denisha. You will have heard me talk about this in this morning's brief. And I had the chance to get connected with Colonel Wes Martin. He has been in the Army for a very long time, retired, um, you know, about a decade ago, and is joining me to talk about aspects of how this process works. Sir, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Travis, uh, appreciate it. Uh, I dropped the sir a long time ago, and uh, old habits die hard, <laughs> sir. And you know, this is a first for me. I mean, you know, all kidding aside, you are the most senior person I've ever had on my show. I've had a lieutenant colonel, uh, Marine Corps Cobra pilot, but you are officially uh, the most senior person. So, old habits die hard. Understood. Wes, can I use Wes? Uh, please do. All right. Um. I got connected through you through the Denisha case and, you know, learned about your, your history in the army uh, from Buck private up to Colonel and what you did just for folks watching who are learning about this and what's going on. Can you just kind of give us an overview of your military career, sir? Yes. It will do. Um, as you mentioned, I started out as a E1 private uh, in 1972 in the artillery. Uh, spent three years in the military, got out after serve, finishing up my tour in Korea inside the Korean DMZ, and then uh, ended up going to college because of the college courses I had. I only had to spend a year and eight months on uh, uh, campus. In the military, we have the best education systems for anybody who wants to use them. Uh, night school, and it's done really very professionally, University of Maryland, 
Phoenix University, all the way up. Uh, so I was I did almost all my education by night school. And I encourage all military members, you got two choices in a place like Korea. You can go out and party all night, or you can go to the education center, you can go to the gym, you can make something of your life. Uh, I went back in as a military police lieutenant, served Germany, then went to Defense Nuclear Agency, where I worked with all four branches of the service. And I point that out for one reason. There was one man, I never met him, but he was running the Navy nuclear program at the time, Hiram Rickover. That name familiar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Admiral Rickover. He had this philosophy, you do your job right on a daily basis and come inspection time, you don't have to worry. Uh, and they had more to fear from Rickover than they had to fear from us in the Navy. Uh, he was that thorough and that good. And I learned that's what it's all about. Do the job right on a daily basis. After that, I got out, went into the reserves. I bounced back and forth between the reserves, active duty. One day I found out I was at the Pentagon and I found out I had my, and my wife kept insisting, would you count up the days? And I said, I don't have the days for a sanctuary. To satisfy her and keep her quiet, I counted up the days, and she was right. Uh, so I went and finished my last two years uh, in, in, back in Korea. Uh, along the way, I also, on active duty, three tours of the Pentagon, uh, two tours in Iraq, and uh, enlisted and also two tours in Korea. My favorite job was probably when I was a private first class. All I had to do was worry about myself and stay out of trouble and be where I'm supposed to and do my job. Uh, the best job I felt I had is when I was the senior anti-terrorism officer for all coalition forces in Iraq. Uh, there, I was out all the time. I'd be walking down the hall in the Baghdad Palace. General Ricardo Sanchez would stop me and say, what's going on? Because he knew I'd been outside the perimeter with the privates and the sergeants and the lieutenants. And he wanted to find out exactly what was going on because his staff officers were filtering everything to him. So I'd give him the raw information right there. And we actually got a lot of problems for the command solved because when I'd have to go see the, uh, the, the one star in charge of logistics and supply and say, General Sanchez said, this is going to happen. Uh, and those troops are going to get what they need. Uh, it did. Uh, and it worked out very, very well. Although, uh, it wasn't my preferred way of doing it because in that particular case, that, that general who was in charge of logistics and supply was a good friend. But when, like I told him one day, when Sanchez stops you in the hallway and says, I want to know what's going on, or just say, what's going on? You better tell him the whole truth because if you don't, he'll find out and he'll come looking for you. Um, I liked working with General Sanchez uh, a lot. Matter of fact, while I was over there, I went to one compound and I found out I was doing a force protection assessment and it was pathetic. I went to the North perimeter of the wall and there was a big hole in the wall where the Americans had blown their way through coming into the compound. Troops had been told to put a roll of Constantina wire at the base of the hole, at the hole. And that's what they did. They went out and threw a bound up roll of Constantina wire at the base of the hole and left it. I go further into the compound into one facility where they hold in detainees and there's a big hole in giant steel doors where uh, troops uh, can just walk through the hole in the door. There's a guard up in the tower, supposed to be watching the hole, but I walked into the tower and slowly walked up the steps like I did when I was a lieutenant checking my isolated missile site. 
I came up behind her. She was sitting there reading a book. Off to the right were the detainees that she was supposed to be watching, make sure they don't get to the uh, that hole in the door because they would have got, got out. There was a, a wire mesh fence uh, separating them from the, the hole in the door, and they were playing basketball. I go to another corner of the compound, and there's a young soldier with a machine gun, uh, 50 caliber machine gun. He doesn't know how to shoot it. What? He didn't know how to shoot it. and uh, But they assigned him to the post. And then I go into the living quarters, and those guys, the, the living conditions was despicable. There was one big 50-gallon uh, trash can that was heaping over with MRE wrappers. And like lava coming out of a volcano, the sergeants didn't make anybody tie off the bag, take it to a dumpster, and put down a new bag. The, the, the living quarters was a dump. And they they were they didn't even set up a connex, turn it up on the side, put a shower head in, and get showers for themselves. I went to the one-star general, and I said, you got a total lack of adult supervision out there. She didn't do anything about it. The name of the compound, it was October 2003, and the name of the compound was Abu Ghraib. Oh. They had no adult supervision at that compound. And all the soldiers thought the battalion commander was their pal and their friend. When you have an O5 as the pal and friend of everybody, you don't have a command. you got to gaggle. And we didn't know what was going on at night during that same time frame, but that same lack of adult supervision, those troops were out of control. And that plays significantly to uh, what we're going to be talking about today. There is no adult supervision going on in many of these commands. When I was a battalion commander, and I ended up being the command, battalion commander twice. Second time, first time it was a petroleum uh, correction. It was a signal battalion. Uh, and the second time was a petroleum battalion. And I was the group deputy commander uh, after I finished my first command. And I walked into my boss's office one day and he says, I got an additional duty for you. Go take command of that battalion. Do something with that officer corps. And uh, so just as I did with my first battalion, my in brief to all the troops, I said, I have six kill zones. You walk into one of these kill zones and you and I are going to have it out. One, if you're a racist, you have no place in my command and I'm coming after you. Sexual misconduct. Lose a weapon. Alcohol on duty. Illegal drugs anytime. Safety violations that could result in the loss of a limb or life and using your authority for your personal gain or pleasure. You stay away from those skill zones and we're going to get along okay. And we're going to follow the principles of be, no, do. Be is the inner character of the individual. No is technically and tactically proficient. Do is getting out there doing your job. If you walk into one of those skill zones, you've violated the B concept, the inner character. And sure enough, in the signal battalion, I had an E9, not my not my top sergeant major. My top sergeant major was awesome. He was the, my deputy. Uh, correction, he was the, uh, the deputy sergeant major, and he was also in charge of training. He was a racist, alcoholic pervert. And I went after him with guns blazing, and he went down. And after that, no more problems in the battalion. Second battalion I had, I had an E7. I had been in command for about a year, and the warrant officer walked in and said, you and I got to have a talk. Jim, Jim, go ahead. What's up? 
And he told me this story about an E7 that had got his driver, female, to go to a lakeside, and he sexually assaulted her. He put his arms around her and tried to kiss her from behind. She pushed him off. That night, she was crying on guard duty, and she was with a, a three-stripe sergeant. I said, what's going on? And she said, oh, I got bad news from home. He said, no, we haven't had no communications with home. Something happened at camp. And he got her to say what happened. He went to the company commander. Company commander asked the E-7, and the E-7 said, yeah, I did it. Company commander said, well, I wish you had done. And that was the end of it until I found out about it. And then once I found out about it, first thing I did is I called my group commander. I said, I need a 15-6. I need an investigation. He said, I just put him in another unit. I said, no, I refuse. I called division and human resources. I said, I need an investigation. Well, that's a lot of work. We're talking late 90s here. Uh, it turned and, into, and, and late nineties is, you know, after tail hook, that was when I was in, I mean, it yeah. was, okay. It was. And, uh, and the troops knew my, my history on fighting sexual misconduct. This one happened before I took command. Uh, but, uh, I called a, a group commander. Can't do it. Called division. Can't do it. I decided, okay, I'm going to have to take care of myself. I did. And I drummed the guy out and it was a reserve unit at the time. Um, as was the other one, but I was maintaining the highest of active duty standards. So I'd always start out with those kill. Matter of fact, after that, we, we drummed that guy out. The whole unit got the message. It's almost like a town marshal coming in. There's always going to be one person that's going to test him or her. And you stand up and you do what's right. The message goes out completely to everybody. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time, like the old Beretta theme song. Uh, and that's all it takes is aggressive leadership. And I have with me the old Army leadership manual uh, for the video. I'll show it. There is nothing in that leadership manual today that cannot solve every one of the problems that we have. But the problem is we have people who don't exercise leadership. They try to exercise management and try to keep everything smooth so they can move on to the next promotion. Einstein had it right when he said, the world is a dangerous place, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who do nothing about it. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Let's just keep things calm. Let's not cause problems. And let's just all get by. And that's the mentality that we had in the uh, 1990s, early 1990s. You mentioned tailhook. I'll take a break uh, and give you a chance to talk because I, I feel like I'm talking too much. Well, I'm just listening. Um, you know, when I joined the Marine Corps, it was right at the tail end, no pun intended, of tailhook, where the Navy pilots, I mean, and decorated officers were were kicked out. Uh, I think it was Barbara, Senator Barbara Boxer who led that charge. And I don't, I was never an officer. I was a terminal lance, long story, but um that whole thing permeated to how we conducted ourselves around WMs, female Marines and females in general. There was no fraternization. There was no hanging out in, in women's barracks. There was none of that. I mean, period, nothing. And, you know, I never experienced, you know, that kind of activity or behavior when I was in. And no, nobody in my battery did. It was just not tolerated. And you, you said something that kind of resonates with me is, you know, the whole senior leadership thing. 
you know, I think of, uh, you know, I've talked to some World War II veterans, Wes, uh, who talked to me about actually meeting uh, General Patton, uh, meeting General MacArthur, and, you know, what happened when things went awry in their units. I mean, General Patton leading his troops, you know, and the tankers to in Africa, so on and so forth. And it just seems like you hit it on the head where no one wants to upset the apple cart. Right. But I remember, you know, if you lost an M16 magazine or a pair of NVGs or didn't have your your missiles towed right for, for transport, the, the consequences were pretty severe. And it just seems like you can do all that kind of other stuff, but military sexual trauma or behavior towards other soldiers, which is just weird to me, is ignored, for lack of a better term. Right. Um, you mentioned General Patton, and it, it gives me an opportunity, and it's pertinent to what we're saying, to tell a story about General Patton. I never met him. He, he died long before I was born. But I did meet the, the man who was his pilot, uh, plane pilot, during the Louisiana War Games. And that man went on to become part of history himself, Paul Tibbetts, the commander of the Enola Gay mission that dropped a bomb on Japan. Paul and I uh, got to be friends late in his life. He liked to tell this story about Patton. And the story was, during the Louisiana War Games, Patton took time to give a briefing to the press about the ability of a tank. They're out on the range. There's bleachers all set up. There's a tank behind Patton. The reporters are on bleachers. Down in the field, there's a house. And Patton starts talking about the greatness of the tank. And he says, that tank will go right through that house and will not even slow down. The range sergeant stepped up and says, General, you and I got to talk. Patton says, I'll get you right after this briefing's over. And uh, the range sergeant steps back. Then Patton says to the reporter, reporters, furthermore, I'm going to get on that tank and I'm going to personally drive it through that house. The sergeant stepped up again and said, General, you and I got to talk and we got to talk now. Patton got huffy and says, Sergeant, I told you I will take care of you after this briefing is over. You go stand over there and I don't want to hear another word out of you until I'm done giving this presentation. Sergeant says, yes, sir. I understand my orders, sir. And he goes and stands off on the side. Patton gets in the tank. He revs it up. He spins it around. He kicks rocks all over the place. He goes down, levels off of the house, and he goes racing into the house, and he smashes into it. And they hear this loud crash, and then all of a sudden, the tank doesn't come up, but the house starts folding down on top of itself. All the sides starts folding in. There's a basement in the house. So they, all the reporters and the staff goes running down, they're pulling boards and everything out, and they finally get to Patton, and they pull him out. And uh, Paul Tibbetts told me, he says, Patton was in really rough shape. He was hurting, he was in his green hornet suit with his football helmet, his gold football helmet on, and um, he stands up as straight as he could, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes my briefing on why you should always listen to your sergeant. And it's, it's, it's very, very pertinent. Uh, Paul loved to tell stories, and usually he was the witness to the stories, and this was one of them. It's important. That's why Sanchez used to stop me in the hallways, because he knew I was out there with the sergeants. I was getting the ground truth. Um, uh, you mentioned tailhook. The Army 
and the Air Force and the Marines went through the same problems, the correction, not the Marines. Marines stayed with the principles of the few and the proud, and they did a great job. The Air Force and the Army ended up having problems at the same time. I was on active duty teaching ROTC at the Western New York University, and the environment I was in was despicable. And I can explain how it got that way. When Reagan was president, and I loved Reagan as a president, Okay. when he was president, he expanded the military to deal with the Soviet threat. And it worked when you think about it. The Soviet Union collapsed, and Reagan didn't even have to fire a single shot. He outspent them, and he outmaneuvered them, and uh, it worked out. But the military had gotten big, and promotion rates to lieutenant colonel was like 89%. Uh, first time, first review. When you have that high of promotion rates and everybody gets to stay, you're going to start picking up problems. And we did. Well, at that time, the cadet command was used. A desert storm was kicking up and suddenly the army shipped all the officers they didn't want in leading troops into combat somewhere to get them out of the way. And cadet command, in all honesty, became kind of like a septic system uh, where they would send them uh, to get an education, get a job, get a home, and get out. The four gets, I called it. Well, that's what I was dealing with. And I was with, uh, uh, I was a reservist who went on active duty to teach. And that's what I walked into. And what was going on in that ROTC detachment was despicable. We had a captain dating two cadets at the same exact moment. We had a major who was having affairs with everybody he could think of to include members of the staff, uh, married members of the staff. It just went on and on. The lieutenant colonel, I swore, was either paranoid, schizophrenic, manic, depressant, or just a 42-year-old mama's boy who never grew up. And one of the people, uh, a psychologist told me later, one may be a contributor to the other. But anyway, finally, I need help because I'm protecting all the cadets from abuse. I'm protecting the staff members, except those officers I didn't protect because I was so disgusted with their behavior. Uh, and I was protecting this guy from everybody else to include parents who wanted to write to the congressman. Finally, enough. I, I need help. And I went to the chain of command. I found out I had a colonel who tried to commit suicide twice when he was a major because he couldn't handle stress. And I found out the, the one star I went to had been sent back from Germany to the United States because of his uh, despicable behavior. And the man who was Sergeant Major of the Army at the time later told me, he said, yeah, we're running him out of the Army, too. That was my chain of command. Wow. So all, all hell came down on top of me with the retaliatory evaluations. I was a major at the time. And what I'm holding up is the OER appeal packet I had to do to clean up my records. And it worked. Matter of fact, uh, the Human uh, Resources Command... Uh, called me one day and they said, we have not seen a packet like that in years. Uh, I had 80 pages of witness statements uh, to include 16 pages from the secretary who heard it all. Anyway, I got my records cleaned up. I was uh, promoted to a lieutenant colonel, later to colonel. And I realized we need to clean this problem up because nobody should have to go through what I went through. I would send in congressionals. I would do other things. And it was going nowhere. But then I noticed this one man named David Hackworth. His stuff was being listened to. 
So I sent him a copy of the packet through King Features, who he was writing his articles from. And pretty soon I got a card from him. No, I got a letter followed by a card. And Hack and I became very close friends. He became like my, my best friend and my mentor. And we then went on a campaign to clean up the army. When the values reform, right? The values? Yeah. Oh, the, the, the army values? Yes. They came as a result of what we were doing. Okay, okay, okay. What, what happened is the army was broke all the way across. And it was the same time where the Aberdeen drill sergeants were caught in a scandal. Yep. And what happened there, and it's all going to play together, is the brigade commander, Dennis Webb, had taken command on Friday. By Sunday, he found out his drill sergeants were having blatant affairs and they were preying on the, the female trainees, the male drill sergeant preying on the female detainees. He called his boss, Major General Bob Shadley, and told him what was going on. Shadley immediately engaged and did everything a general should do. He started in, uh, got with Criminal Investigation Command, who was run by Dan Doherty at the time, who I served with in Berlin Brigade when I was a lieutenant. He was a major. And Dan was a straight-as-arrow officer. And Shadley then opened up phone banks. He looked everywhere, not only what was going on now, but what could have been going on in the past. And very, very, very thorough professionalism and did everything right. He caught flack from Secretary of the Army Togo West because he was bringing discredit to the Army. And he ended up standing his ground, fighting the fight, and making a major difference. Meantime, I, uh, I see a television interview where Brenda Huster blows the whistle. Sergeant Major, the retired Brenda Huster, blows the whistle on Sergeant Major of the Army, Gene McKinney. I see the interview and I realize she's telling the truth, but she is gonna have a really rough time. So I knew she lived in El Paso from the interview. We were able to find her address. I sent her a letter with documentation between Hackworth and I to assure her I was not uh, some guy trying to probe and uh, set her up. Right, and right. We ended up helping her greatly and ironically, she was being given a lot of information uh, from me, which I was getting from Hackworth, and Hackworth was getting from a very senior officer in the Pentagon. And I mean, he was getting it from the chief of staff of the Army. And uh, we were giving it to Brenda, and she was going on Nightline Good Morning America and doing all these great things. And we were able to force the court martial of Sergeant Major of the Army McKinney. Unfortunately, the verdict came out, and the verdict was guilty of a conspiracy to cover up a crime, but not guilty of any crime. So as a result, I was livid, and I was having lunch or breakfast uh, a couple days later and uh, with a guy named John Pitchford, a retired colonel. And what John, I explained everything to him. He went back home, wrote a letter to USA Today. They came out and published it. And Donna Marie Madden got a hold of him and told him what uh, Deputy Inspector General of the Army, uh, um, Major General David Hale, did to her. And John became her uh, warrior. So between what Shadley was doing, uh, Hack and I and the, the ladies of Blue the Whistle on McKinney, and especially Pitchford, because he forced the court-martial into the motion of the Deputy Inspector General of the Army 
then the army had to admit they got a problem. So what happened is, and we kept the attack up. We were going on the attack hard until what happened was uh, the bombing in Bosnia and the fight against Milosevic. We backed off and to show unity. During that time, the army came out with army values. They came out with consideration of others. But again, there was nothing in the army values that could, was not already in the leadership manual. However, the army did clean itself up. And plus, when Clinton was president, it's kind of ironic because he was because of him. But when Clinton was president, the military got smaller and we were able to downsize. And we cleaned ourselves up uh, as a combination of those two things. We went into combat in 2003 and we had some of the finest officers leading the army. We had as the, uh, the G3 lay the vice uh, chief of staff of the army, Dick Cody. We had uh, uh, the vice lay the commander of all forces in Iraq uh, and lay the chief of staff of the army, George Casey. We had Ray Odiano, who commanded forces in Iraq, lay the chief of staff of the army. These were the, some of the highest quality officers I have ever known of. Uh, I worked with uh, uh, Cody at the Pentagon, and I, I worked up to this day with George Casey. Outstanding, dedicated officers. They they led the fight into Desert Storm, and uh, not Desert Storm, the fight into Operation Iraqi Freedom and in Afghanistan, Operation Enduring Freedom. We had the highest level of ethics you could imagine. But we saw something going on. All those deployments in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan, we are seeing young lieutenants, captains, sergeants, and junior enlisted soldiers getting out. They said, I've got a family to take care of. Yes, I want to serve my country, but I can't go to combat every other year and have my family endure it. They got out and we created a lot of vacancies. As yeah, a I was gonna, I was, thank you for bringing this up because I, I'm looking at what's going on now with um, Denisha Montgomery and Vanessa Guillen and other discipline issues, Elder Fernandez here in the, uh, you know, South Shore area, Massachusetts. And it almost seems like this is happening all over again. It is. Okay. And that, what I just mentioned is a major contributor as to why it's happening. Okay. We lost, uh, I'm a combat veteran. I hate paying for the same real estate twice. We lost all that real estate we gained. And unfortunately, we also, one of the biggest things we lost is lack of accountability. And I mentioned earlier, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. But nowadays, people in leadership positions, they want to just manage. And management is managed to get by. Leadership, you identify a problem. You, you, you do the after action report. What happened? What went right? What went wrong? How can we do it better? And now let's go do it better. We're not doing that anymore. Why, why, why do you think that is? Is it just because you have to manage your career in a way to move up? Is it fear? Is it, is it consequence? Because if you're not pursuing excellence, which is what people think the military is all about, then, then what, really, what, what do we have here? I came across a quote yesterday from the Dalai Lama, and, it really, and I thought, this really pertains. And what the Dalai Lama said is, when you think of others, you no longer think of yourself. 
when we face problems, we can use our intelligence to overcome them. We have to tell ourselves, I am a human being and I am not alone. We need never fear hopelessness. Unfortunately, the lessons of the Dalai Lama, especially this one, is being lost. If you take yourself into a leadership position, loyalty works two ways. And we mentioned Patton and Patton pointed it out. Loyalty works from the bottom to the top, but it works from the top to the bottom. And he said the top to the bottom is much less prevalent and it should be the most. And we're seeing that they're trying to manage their careers. That Sergeant Major I told you about that was a racist hell called pervert. I knew his former uh, 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 raider, the, the, the officer over him. And I asked him one day, I said, has this guy always behaved this way? He said, oh, yeah, he's always been like that. And then I held up this guy's last evaluation. I said, then why did you max him out on his last report? And this guy, all of a sudden, he had this look on his face and he said, well, I didn't personally see any of it. Excuse me? When a problem is reported to you, if you're a leader, you own that problem. And you have no other recourse other than to, one, find out, is it true? And, and I'm a strong believer, being military police, that a person is innocent till proven guilty. Facts will determine the results. But when you are notified there is a serious problem going on, you need to get in there and fix it. That's what we're not seeing going on. And that gives us a good example to talk about some of these cases. Let's talk about first Nicole Burnham in Korea. Okay. She had just come out of training, really motivated soldier, wanted to do everything right. She goes to Korea as a young uh, E3, uh, private first class, and she gets sexually assaulted. And she reports it. And the solution was to move her into the headquarters barracks three doors down from one of her assailants. And uh, she asked for a compassionate reassignment back to the States. 82 days, she could not get a compassionate reassignment back to the States. In the meantime, her brigade commander, we later found out, was doing none of the work that he was supposed to be doing on the sexual harassment assault response prevention program, the SHOP program. He wasn't having any of the meetings. He wasn't doing any of the discovery. She is languishing and she is being taunted by the soldiers who assaulted her. And now she's getting Facebook hateful messages from the, uh, the spouses of those soldiers. And there's a lot more that was just despicable about what happened to her. Finally, she got transferred back to the United States and one of her predators, her primary predators followed her, the guy who set her up pretending to be her friend, and he wasn't. And then she commits suicide at Fort Carson, Colorado. Fine soldier from a very fine family. I was with the family when the army uh, sent three people, her former brigade commander, the brigade, her brigade commander in Korea, the brigade commander who inherited her, never being told about the situation, and then the deputy division commander from Fort Carson. And the brigade commander from Korea he had a deer in the headlights look the whole time. He could never explain 
what he had done in his entire command to prevent sexual abuse and abuse of authority. See, so, so you know, I, I followed General Powell a lot. Um, I, I, he has a quote saying, you know, if you know, leadership is about dealing with problems and if you can't deal with your troops, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you can't deal with your troops' problems, you're not fit to lead. He, you're right. And Powell said something also very similar, is when people can't come and talk to you about their problems, you're not leading anymore. And I've had bosses where you you come and you bring a problem up to them. And the first thing you get is a temper tantrum. Well, that's their way of keeping you from saying what's going wrong. And you've got to have that open door where, like I said, that warrant officer, Jim, came in and he says, sir, you and I got to talk. And this is, as you well know, this is a special relationship between old officers, commissioned officers, and warrant officers. Yep. And Jim walked in and says, we got to talk. And then he, he had the honesty and the dignity uh, and the the courage to come and say, my captain is doing nothing about this. And matter of fact, they were promoting the E7. They were, they had sent the promotion packet of the E7 in so he could get promoted to E8 a year after he assaulted this young lady. So you leave the door open and you listen. And when you get, again, as I mentioned, when the problem is pointed out to you, you get in there and you find out what's going on. If you have to appoint a, a special investigative officer, you do it. And also, one of the things I found nowadays with computers, people like to do their entire job by staying at the computer and sending out emails. You've got to continually, and I'll go back to Sergeant Major of the Army, Gates. And even though um, I'm an old soldier, I'm officially retired from the military, but still doing a lot of work dealing with a lot of the people I did with when I was on active duty. I'm amazed at how much I'm still learning from Sergeant Major of the Army Gates. And he had this belief that you cannot pass a problem without solving it. Earlier, uh, before we went on air, I was telling you about the time when he was Sergeant Major of the Army and he was out running his morning physical fitness on Fort Myer and he came across the Army band and they were doing PT, a couple officers and a couple NCOs were standing behind the troops and the troops were kind of doing push-ups, uh, about 12 different versions of a push-up or not in sequence at all. He stopped and he went over to those standing behind and he jumped on them. And why aren't you down there with them? Why aren't you leading them? And he went through and they, they were in all, all different uniforms too. He just ripped into them. And this Lieutenant Colonel, looked at him and says, who are you? And here's the Lieutenant Colonel that didn't recognize the Sergeant Major of the Army. I mean, where did that come from? But and Gates said to him, it's not important who I am. What's important is you need to start doing your job. And after Gates ripped him apart, as he was walking away, he heard the Lieutenant Colonel say to the uh, Senior Sergeant, who is that guy? And uh, the senior sergeant said, that is Sergeant Major of the Army Gates. And the lieutenant colonel says, oh, my God, I'm in trouble now. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, the band reported in with an operations plan on how they were going to do physical fitness training. Gates just walked by and he saw a problem. 
and he immediately got it fixed by addressing it. We don't have, across the board, leaders doing that right now. We have people, oh, let's just not create problems. Let's just get by. That doesn't solve anything. I have a, a saying in combat, people will ask me, you're in the middle of a firefight. Are you fighting for the flag? Are you fighting for the country? And I said, no, you're not. You serve the nation. You defend the Constitution. You rally to the flag. But you fight for the one on the left and the one on the right. And that's what we need now. We need people willing to fight for the one on the left and the one on the right. And you, the, the, the case at point... Denisha Montgomery, and I'll talk about that next, but you had you had a comment. So yeah, we're leading up to Denisha Montgomery. And, and one of the things that, you know, gets me is when, when, you know, I joined the Marine Corps, when my son looked at joining the Marine Corps, the recruiter sits down and says, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to take care of, you know, your child. The agreement is not between the parents. It's between the person joining the military and the military, right? But a lot of times you'll hear recruiters say, or I'm told, you know, recruiters are going to take care of them. And for these people affected by this, especially Denisha's family, we'll get into here in a second. It's almost like the worst thing is that that trust is broken and people are having a hard time understanding why that is. And you've kind of, you've explained why that is, but then they don't understand, you know, this vacuum where nothing seems to be going on. So, you know, Denisha Montgomery died in August of this year, 2022, had problems, and the Army seemed to want to just sweep it under the rug and say this was just a case of suicide. And there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. But there seems to be a lot of failings with the military police unit she was assigned to. And it's just hard for people to understand what the, the, the justice process in the military is like, like Wes. It is. And I'm doing a very, very thorough analysis. And it's right now, it's as thick as that OER appeal packet that I had to put in on this entire situation with Denisha Montgomery. She joined the Army to take care of her family. She really enjoyed the work that she was doing. They go, the unit goes on temporary duty over to Darmstadt, Germany. Over there, she gets assaulted in a vehicle and by four other military policemen to include her female roommate. She not sexually assaulted, she was strangled. And she thought she was going to die. And I've got pictures of the bruise marks and all. And she reported to her chain of command. I'm finding no evidence the chain of command took aggressive action. And then she stops somebody uh, as a military policeman. She makes a patrol stop. The person has drugs in the vehicle. The sergeant comes up and tells her, let him go. Now, she came out of Fort Stewart, Georgia. At Fort Bragg, her MP brigade, which this Fort Stewart, Georgia uh, command was subordinate to, 
MPs had been busted there for running drugs out of their patrol vehicles. Now, was this a continuation or not? We don't know. But it's something that needs to be looked at. But anyway, a few days later, this soldier who she stopped died, apparently as a result of the drugs. If she had been allowed to follow through and give that ticket and make that bust, it would have forced that soldier to get the medical treatment that he needed. But it didn't happen. So that's an issue that we're trying to see is the Army addressing it. Denisha comes up. I'm trying to say this as sensitive as I could. She is found hanging from her wall locker door. I'm looking at the autopsy report. The autopsy report has cause of death, hanging, manner of death, suicide. I have never seen an autopsy report state suicide. It may say the cause of death is asphyxiation, uh, manner of death, hanging, or uh, uh, suffocation. It could even say um, uh, it, 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 just to have it say, and I'm trying to be very careful sure. in case the family listens, and I, I want to protect their them as well. But to say the manner of death was suicide, no. There is no way the autopsy, the coroner or the medical examiner can make that determination because that is where the field investigation. Matter of fact, this autopsy was not done in Germany. It was done eight days later at Dover. The excuse could be, oh, well, we didn't have the medical resources. But originally, one of the senior officers explained to Never Alone, um, Amy Frank, uh, the head of Never Alone, that, well, the Germans uh, ha have jurisdiction and they're doing the autopsy. And we got a letter from the Germans saying, no, we don't have jurisdiction and we did not do the autopsy. When you tell the truth, you only need to remember one story. Right, right. Denisha Montgomery, they're all over the map. They're everywhere. And also, those MPs that assaulted her, we can see no accountability. We got photos where they're still wearing their guns, going out enforcing the law. And we even have a photo where the Secretary of the Army came to visit after that. And they're with the Secretary of the Army in the mess hall. Where is the accountability for the assault? Where is the investigation on all the details concerning Denisha Montgomery? I'm coming up with so many inconsistencies in this that it's, it's despicable. And I shouldn't have to go back and do the work the CID agent should be doing in commands trying to cover cover things up. And whether it's incompetence, whether it's corruption, that's what I'm working my way through. But the bottom line is the end result is the same. Justice delayed is justice denied. And so far, I'm not seeing any justice for Denisha Montgomery. When she first reported that problem, there should have been aggressive action taken. There wasn't. 
no more than there was with uh, Nicole Burnham. And even Asia Graham, there was not aggressive accountability there. And I'll explain what happened with Asia in a little bit. But Denisha Montgomery had children. She had a husband. She had family that loved her. And they were looking forward to her coming home in a couple of weeks. Unfortunately, what they received was a deceased daughter. And next week, now I am glad to say one thing. We, we have picked up an ally in the fight for justice in what happened to Nisha Montgomery. And the ally is Senator Charles Grassley. Grassley I heard about that. I read, I read, I read, his, yes. I read his letter. I've worked with Grassley before. Oh, really? And, uh, years ago, uh, when I was uh, the head of uh, Protective Force Operations, the Guard Force at Sandia National Labs, internal affairs came across a lot of corruption, to include inside my operation. And I looked at it. They're right. we got to fix it. And I started fixing it, and I backed up internal affairs because they're right. Well, other management made the mistake of coming after me. I ended up talking to my friend, David Hackworth, who was friends with Grassley, and he brought Grassley into the fight. Sandia Labs made the mistake of lying to Grassley. And like I said to Grassley a couple of years ago, uh, if you wake up in the morning and decide, today I'm going to do the dumbest thing I can possibly do, lying to Chuck Grassley will get you there. And uh, he, he laughed and he agreed with me. Well, if the Army is going to try to lie to Chuck Grassley, they're going to take on a fight they're not even going to want because that man is the Frank Serpico of the United States Senate. You remember Detective Frank Serpico? Yeah, yeah. And Serpico, made, uh, when he, uh, he refused to go in on the corruption in the detective force in New York City uh, Police Department, before the Knapp Commission, he made two statements that really pertain to what we're talking about here. One statement was, Corruption cannot exist unless it's tolerated by management. And two, we must create an environment where the dishonest officer fears the honest one and not the other way around. That applies very, very much to the military. Well, and it applies to this case because, you know, I don't know much. You know, I learn every day, but I'm like, those four soldiers who assaulted Denisha wouldn't be walking around if their command either wasn't willingly turning a blind eye or being encouraged to turn a blind eye. My third option is, you know what, we just don't care because we don't want to make that mess you're talking about, so we're not going to do anything about it. So that corruption has taken root in that unit. The rot is there, and it's it's just pervasive now. And to build upon what you just said, and you're totally correct, all the way across by leaving those people in uniform, leaving them there with their firearms, that's sending out a message to everybody else that uh, we can get away with anything we want and our command's going to protect us. And again, I mentioned Never Alone and Amy Frank, and she challenged the officers over them. And one of the officers came back and stated, well, we can keep a better eye on them if they're in uniform and on duty. You don't send a dirty cop, and the, the, the death is a separate from the assault. The assault, clearly dirty, and we have evidence of dirty. We're still working on the other one. As soon as that happens, you take them off. A, a, a civilian law enforcement, as soon as somebody gets an internal affairs complaint on them, 
internal affairs locks in on them. And then the people are removed from duty anywhere they can influence the, the outcome of the witnesses, anything else. In this case, they didn't. It, was, it goes back to, and the reason I mentioned that Abu Ghraib situation earlier, when I told the commanding general she had a total lack of adult supervision, that is exactly what we see going on here. I'm going through page by page, and it reminds me of the mess I saw at Abu Ghraib, where the, the MPs were abusing Iraqi detainees. We went to Iraq to free those people from tyranny, not to bring more upon them. Likewise, soldiers enter the United States military. Like I mentioned earlier, you have a chance to use the education centers, build the camaraderie, get the training. Like we used to say in the Army, the Marines, you had a saying, the few and the proud. The Army, we had be all you can be. Unfortunately, for some reason, we got away from that. Uh, and we, we, that, that slogan was buried. But some of us still hold on to it. Denisha was trying to be all she can be and build her life. That was taken away from her. And the people who, who should have had that loyalty, what Patton was talking about, from the top to the bottom, they're not exercising it. They didn't exercise it when she got assaulted. They're not exercising it right now to show, ensure there's justice for Denisha, but for everybody else. Because if these soldiers get away with this, what they got away with, they're just going to keep on doing it. Because the message is, I can do it. No one's going. No one's going to make me accountable. No, and uh, that's where I, I mentioned earlier. I got into this fight dealing with a lieutenant colonel, who acted like uh, the uh, the spoiled child in a supermarket, where if I throw a tantrum and I throw objects at people, then my parents will give me what I want, and I can lie my way out of it. Well, that was an extreme. Uh, that was the most despicable officer I've ever worked with, to include Iraqi officers. But somehow he was allowed to get up through the American system through lack of accountability and get himself into a position of authority. Likewise, these guys are not being held accountable. There's no aggressive action against them. And matter of fact, some of them involved immediately after Tanisha died, started calling the family. One in particular started calling the family, see what the family knew. When I used to give unannounced drug testing, and all the results would go to the lab, and it would take us a while to get the results back. Within a week, I knew who was going to come up hot, because those were the people that were coming in asking my uh, my my staff, uh, "Are the results back yet?" Well, okay, now we know who's going to come up hot, because those who were clean didn't follow up with any questions or anything else. It was okay. I had to give a sample, go back to work. No big deal. It's the ones who ask the questions that you've got to wonder why. So one thing that I wonder why about is I started going down the Vanessa Guillen rabbit hole because there's a lot of parallels between the two cases. Um, soldier has a problem, reports a problem, and then, you know, gets treated poorly. And there there's breakdown in process procedure and leadership. And I'm reading through the report of the Fort Hood Independent Review Committee and the recommendations for the Army, out of, for not only Fort Hood, but the wider Army. And it just baffles my mind, Wes, that if, if that had been followed, Denisha would still be alive today. You know, um, 
why why well, is the army not taking this stuff seriously as simply as i can say it um unfortunately it gets back to leadership but let's let's talk about fort hood for a bit okay uh general milley who's now chairman of the joint chiefs was the command, corps commander at fort hood in 2015. that's where we see if we go back to where all the problems started occurring at fort hood and you got two divisions there in the corps headquarters it's a massive massive uh, compound but what's happening is the the sharp program the sexual harassment uh, 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 prevention program was undermined at fort hood at that time we started seeing things getting out of control millie went up and now he's the chairman of the joint chiefs when he was uh, chief of staff of the army his g1 personnel chief was uh, then lieutenant general mcconville who now is chief of staff of the army when he was G1, McConville took apart and basically uh, dismembered the Sharp program, which uh, if we had good, effective leadership, you wouldn't need the Sharp program at all. But it's a, it's a way to have a reporting system going on. And one of the requirements of the reporting, all sexual assaults are to be automatically reported to CID. That is a... a relatively new requirement but i love it because when i was a battalion commander and i went to my colonel and i said i need an investigation we didn't i didn't have the mechanisms at that time to contact criminal investigation command and um, now i would be empowered to just directly go to them and bring in the investigators but unfortunately also what happened at fort hood is the quality of the criminal investigation command was way down uh, because they were the they come in from mainly from the military police they get the additional training and it takes four or five years to really train a good uh, investigator well about that time these guys are sent off to do personal security details for secretary of the army chief of staff for other missions then they're brought back after those missions are completed and they're much more senior in rank but they haven't advanced in the investigative skills so there were the fourth hood and vanessa Guillen was a perfect storm unfortunately the one officer who suffered the consequences of uh, fort hood was major general scott effland he wasn't the problem and the guy who headed up that inquiry that you talked about, Chris told us the wrong person was held accountable because he had just come there and everything he was doing was correct, just like Bob Shadley years earlier. Uh, Scott was doing everything exactly the way he should be, and he hadn't been there that long, and he was also dealing with personal tragedy in his family. But he was, he was a warrior. He was fighting for the soldiers. He was fighting for the mission, doing it right. But somebody had to go down and take the fall. It wasn't going to be the Corps commander. It wasn't going to be the guy who started the problems or was in command when the problem started in 2015, Mark Milney, now chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And I, I've had the pleasure to work with two chairmen of the Joint Chiefs. One was after the fact, Hugh Shelton, who uh, was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs back in the late uh, uh, 1990s and going into the 2000s he was like the omar bradley of uh, uh our generation yeah 
And then I worked with Marty Dempsey when he was a one star in Iraq before he went off to get his uh, promotions and ended up being chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I'm not seeing the leadership coming out of Millie that I saw coming out of both of those gentlemen. You don't solve a problem. And going back to Einstein, the world is a dangerous place because of the people who do nothing about it. And they're not aggressively engaging. Yeah, they're given, they're given the words, they're given the verbiage. But uh, Roosevelt did not defeat Adolf Hitler with words. He defeated them by sending officers like Eisenhower, Bradley, MacArthur, Collins to Europe to fight the fight with George Marshall back there managing everything. He, and then it went all the way down. Patton said, you do not walk by a problem. Just like Gates, Sergeant Major of the Army Gates with a band. He saw a problem. He went and got it fixed. And the one time Patton didn't listen to a sergeant, he admitted to the world, I didn't listen to my sergeant. And I should have, but we're not seeing that now, unfortunately. And the way the entire thing on Vanessa Guillen was handled, Robinson, they figured had was a person of great interest and they realized he probably did it. So the command restricted them to his barracks. You got fire escapes, you got all other exits. Yeah. If he walked out past the charge of quarters, he would be seen, but otherwise he was gone. And it took the clean police department to uh, attempt to arrest him. And that's when he committed suicide. But the one man who took the greatest hit was the one who was recently assigned there and immediately started engaging the problem. But the army will take down the two-star or a one-star quick. But, the, but they're very protective on their uh, three-stars and four-stars. Go ahead. So, so we're at this point where, you know, there's starting to be traction ordination, which I'm, I'm, you know, my condolences to the family. Uh, you know, I've seen the social media post. I've watched the, the, the newscast. And, you know, one common theme is it seemed like that, that there's a lot of activity for Vanessa Guillen and people are wondering, you know, where is this level of activity for Denisha? And I don't like assumptions, uh, sir. I'm going to say that respectfully because they're the mother of all screw-ups. But, um, you know, I know there's stuff going on in the background. But in just very easy layman terms, this happened to Denisha. This happened to Vanessa what are the steps to start getting and we we've already got a major win with senator grassley on board with this now and i've read the letter and was like okay this guy's not messing around but to get to that point to get from this situation happening to a senator grassley type involvement is this length of time normal is this you know out of bounds or would this have been resolved quicker with a more engaged, more accountable, better leadership? I'm, I'm sure that answer is yes, but it just seems to be taking long because, and the reason I say this is in the civilian world, you know, and, and I, I manage staff in my my professional career, you know, if, if one of my staff members comes to me and says, hey, this kind of problem happened, it's, it's immediately, I'm supposed to go to my management chain of command immediately 
HR immediately and it's dealt with immediately, not months down the road, or we're going to let that person immediately. And so people are having a problem understanding how, in some cases, the civilian world kind of works better than the military one does. Does that, does that make any sense? It, it makes total sense. And the sad part is it makes total sense. And when you think about it, it's backwards from what it, you'd expect. Right. First off, today, eight days to get an autopsy. That's unreal. That's unreal. The first 24 followed by the first 48 hours are the most critical in making an investigation. But first, well, the Germans have the body. Well, no, the Germans don't have the body. Uh, and we get it to Dover and we let an Air Force medical examiner take care of it. But a medical examiner is a medical examiner. But again, to come up with that conclusion, why? But going back to the environment itself, the minute she reported that she had been assaulted by five, uh, excuse me, four people, that was what we call in combat, the indication and warnings. When you're in combat, like you're going down the road and you feel it or you see it, you're going down the road and there's no kids out there playing. Well, guess what? You're about to get hit because all the parents have pulled the kids off the street. You, you know you've got a responsibility to take. If the command, chain of command had been proactive, but instead what happens, there's some problems over there. So the first sergeant tells a staff sergeant uh, who's going on leave to take your leave and go over there and find out what's going on. And he was one of them allegedly, and I do say the word allegedly, involved in having some of the affairs. I believe what they did is they reverse engineered the excuse as to why he was there. It's the gang that can't shoot straight and they can't tell a straight story. And they're stumbling all over themselves. Years ago, when I was with Defense Nuclear Agency, before we started, I mentioned how much I liked inspecting the Navy, uh, the Navy ships, because Hiram Rickover was the admiral in charge. And Rickover, he was rough. And he would call down to Navy ships and just say, the skipper, you need to go see your commodore. Yes, sir. Why? To tell him putting somebody else on that ship you're sitting on because you're relieved. But Rickover, on the, he believed in you do your job right on a daily basis, every minute. Don't worry about the inspections. But we'd see some others that would try to put on a big show, not the Navy, not the Marines, but other branches try to put on a big show when we showed up. But you could see they weren't doing it right on a daily basis. And they'd stumble all over themselves. And that's what I'm seeing here. They weren't doing the job right on a daily basis. They weren't having professional leaderships dedicated to the principles of duty on the country, care of the soldier, candor, courage, competence, and commitment, all these other uh, things that we've been trained on. And now they're trying to reverse engineer their excuses and they're stumbling all over themselves. It reminds me years ago, again, when I... Uh, when I was on a SWAT team for the uh, Department of Energy Nuclear, one of my fellow patrolmen one night, he was out on patrol, and all of a sudden he heard this clatter coming right at him. Uh, he had got out to check something, and he didn't know what it was. And all of a sudden, a rabbit went running by him, and there was a pack of coyotes chasing the rabbit. And my friend threw down on the coyotes, and they, they, they went into skid mode, stumbling all over each other and bumping into each other. And finally, they scurried off. That's what this whole thing about 
uh, Denisha Montgomery is looking like with her chain of command. It's like that pack of coyotes stumbling all over each other and then running off and, and trying to reverse engineer their excuses. The report I'm going through, uh, where is the leadership? Yeah. I mentioned Asia Graham. She had been sexually assaulted while she was passed out in Fort Bliss, Texas. And in, in front of the charge of quarters, Christian Al, she said to Christian Alvarado, who was her assaulter, you raped me. Well, the charge of quarters at that minute owned it, and he had a responsibility to go tell his commander. The command knew that Christian Alvarado had raped uh, Asia Graham while she was passed out. They did nothing about it. Later, only because of News Nation getting involved and doing thorough investigative reporting, they found out this guy was a serial rapist. Back home in, at Fort Bliss, he had multiple rapes that he had committed. If it hadn't been for News Nation going out and doing the investigative reports, and then suddenly uh, Fort Bliss announces we have this Project Buccaneer where we're addressing all these problems. Well, they didn't have them when News Nation was down there. Uh, anyway, go ahead. That leads me to, you know, kind of the culmination of this. It is There's a clear deficiency in leadership at the, at the senior level. You know, you know, I, I hear a lot about, you know, the NCOs are, are trash, you know, they're no good. And, you know, the, the, the O1s, O3s aren't competent enough. But this is from the top down, you know. It all starts with the head, head and, and works itself down, which leaves a lot of Americans because the thing that gets me is, is Denisha, whether you're served or not, if you're black, white, pink or purple or not, Denisha is an American, a fellow American. And for us veterans, she's a fellow service member. People ask, well, what can I do? Because I don't like this. I don't think. You know, anybody should be subjected to this. This is not what I want for our military. And, you know, a lot of people get on their keyboards and their phones and, and make, you know, noise. But there's a lot of people out there wanting to do something. What can the American taxpayer, the American citizen do about this? The, what I recommend is get on that keyboard and write a personal letter to your congressional representative. When your congressional representative comes to town hall meetings, go to them and ask the question in front of the whole audience. What are you doing to help solve this problem? Now, I, I, I hear the same thing you do about commanders and uh, soldiers. Patton pointed out, there are no bad commands, just bad commanders. When I was in the field uh, in uh, operation, uh, operations in Iraq, and that's why Sanchez grabbed me, because I was out there with the privates and the lieutenants, I saw young men and women doing heroic stuff on a daily basis, acting like professional soldiers. Abu Ghraib was a travesty, and just a few people we're doing that, but it gave a bad image to all of us. Good soldiers doing great things. One quick war story. One day we were uh, inspecting the site and there were three little Iraqi kids there watching us. And I always carried 
Tootsie Rolls in my uh, pocket because in, even in 120 degree heat, they don't melt. So I reached in and I took some Tootsie Rolls and I gave them to the kids. And the little girl, when she accepted them, she says, I love you. Well, that tells me Americans had been there before and somebody had been very kind to her and taught her some nice words. And I saw that all across Iraq with great soldiers want to do great things. But they have the expectation of professional leadership. They need professional leadership. And the leadership, going back to Patton, the loyalty, top down. They're not getting that loyalty. People are looking more for the careers than they are for the troops. They're looking for the awards. And we used to have a saying, it, it was, which is more important, mission or troops? And the solution was mission first, soldiers always. And, and now that that's getting twisted around again because of the people trying to find the correct things to say. You can't do the mission without the troops, without well-led troops. And if the troops trust their leaders to look out for them always, and that includes peacetime, then they'll follow them in combat. But how can you expect soldiers who see leaders, and I use that term leader very loosely, I should be saying managers, those managing to survive. If they're not seeing the loyalty for them, they're not seeing people willing to come up and stand and do the harder right over the easier wrong. And that's in the West Point prayer. Give me the strength to do the harder right over the easier wrong. You're going to have a breakdown. And think of it as, 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 a, a, as a dam and the water from a dam. If the, if the dam springs a leak, you go and you fix the leak. And you find out what's causing the leak in the first place, and you fix that. We're not doing that. And soldiers, like water, if they see no resistance, or people like water, if they see no resistance, you'll have an element decides, I can get away with anything I want. And that's what happened with, especially with Asia Graham, Nicole Burnham, Vanessa Guillen, and Denisha Montgomery, and hundreds of others, yeah, thousands of others. The victims, how many victims are out there we don't know about because they're not coming forward? Well, why would you know? Well, you why wouldn't. Uh, you wouldn't for the simple reason you know you're going to be the one retaliated against. Uh, we had the uh, case where uh, you and I talked about um, uh, by email, Elder Fernandez at yeah. Fort Hood. He reported it. And then suddenly he is the one being counseled. He is the one receiving the, the, the treatment while you have psychological problems. And then he's put into a situation where allegedly he committed suicide and the family is suing the military. And I wish them well because he went into the military determined to be a good soldier. And what happened? The system failed him. When he turned to the system and told, well, you can trust us. We take care of our soldiers always. Well, they didn't take care of him. And he was betrayed. And betrayal is the willful slaughter of trust. And that's what soldiers are seeing right now 
is they are being betrayed and it's a wolf of slaughter trust by the seniors. Well, I, I, I'm, first of all, I just learned a whole lot being able to talk with you. It, it certainly clarifies, you know, some things that, you know, us enlisted suspect. I mean, we know a good leader when, when, when that leader is there, we have no problem with, you know, high demands of, of expectations for, you know, performance and, and personal behavior but it has to be seen from the top down. I, I guess to kind of close this out, you know, uh, Wes, you know, what's next for you? I know you have some other projects you're working on, but for the Denisha Montgomery case, is it really hinged on what happens with uh, Senator Grassley's request? Um, unfortunately, request. <laughs> <laughs> <He> request. <laughs> uh, Chuck Grassley doesn't request. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I'll tell you what, that man has always been a pleasure to work with. Uh, he is tough as nails. Uh, and he's got that Iowa farmer ethics. Yeah. And um, how careful do I, you remember that saying I told you that I told Grassley before we started? Yeah. Arrogance and confidence. Am I able to say that on, on you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, years ago, I developed a saying, arrogance and incompetence have a habit of riding together, firmly mounted on the back of the same jackass. And Grassley loves that statement. And I know out when he does his Iowa farming, and he's talking to the communities out there, he's probably using it now. But we see that over and over again, these people in position of authority being very arrogant and very incompetent at the same time and it's the subordinates that have to suffer the consequences. But this is also a national readiness issue. Because if you don't have, for instance, let's take Russia and Ukraine. Who would have predicted a year ago that Ukraine would be whipping up on Russia the way it is? Well, the Ukrainians learned something from the Americans. And one, they're fighting for their homeland. And I served with the Ukrainians in Iraq. And I watched them study the way the Americans work. And we have a secret weapon that the Russians don't have. It's this, the sergeants, the NCO Corps. Those guys are able to lead where Russians have to use officers. We have good people in the system that want to do the harder right or the easier wrong. They just need to be presented the environment in which they can succeed. And they're not getting it. And so to answer your earlier question, what can people do? Congress is the one who allocates the budgets. The Senate is the ones who approve the general officer and the admiral officer promotions. The Senate can solve this problem fairly quick. Just send word to the, uh, all four branches. We are not going to promote another general officer until you prove to us he'll fix this problem. And you'll start to see a bunch of senior officers motivating themselves and fix the issues. Congress can threaten to reduce budgets, not a very safe thing to do right now with the threats coming from China and from Russia. But uh, when you answer the way ahead, I'm working with an organization called Never Alone Advocacy. Uh, Amy Frank, I mentioned a couple times, the man who brought me into this organization was General Bob Shadley, the man who did all the right stuff with Aberdeen. And also from the old Hackworth network, I brought on John Pitchford. 
and we're bringing on other key players who are determined they're going to fight for the harder right over the easier wrong. And we're winning, but when you think about it, that the size of that investigation I showed you I'm doing, I've, I've that's about the sixth one I've had to do now. It's amazing. This is the sixth, sixth one uh, I, I, I've done. Uh, this one's on uh, um, Denisha Montgomery, but I, I shouldn't have to be doing these because I feel like the little Dutch boy running around trying to plug the holes. And it's taken, it takes me about two weeks to get one of those done right. I did one on a young um, uh, Brandon Caserta. He was a Navy. He was tormented so bad by his chain of command and abused so bad by his chain of command, he jumped into the rear rotor blade of a Seahawk. And the the Navy ended up having the 15-6 officer, inquiry officer, do the investigation. And he, his recommendation was, we should not court, we should not give the uh, the sergeant, uh, correction, the, the officer who caused this problem, uh, non-judicial punishment because he could ask for a court-martial and then it could expose bigger problems. Uh, let's just give him a bad evaluation when the time comes. That was total lack of accountability. A young, fine man died when he should have been supported. I did another inquiry on uh, uh, Nicole Burnham. I was I represented the family for Nicole uh, uh, Graham down at the court-martial of Christian Alvarado. And all this work we're doing, we shouldn't have to do. The military should already have itself cleaned up. And our organization is hitting a bunch of points, but how many other thousands are there out there? The audience, write to the congressman, write to the senator, express their disgust, bring pressure down. Uh, Chuck Grassley is a dynamic man. He's the Frank Serpico of the U.S. Senate. Uh, he's America's senator, but at the same time, there are many, many others who should be engaged, and they should be writing Lloyd Austin uh, saying, I'm not taking this anymore. So last point, uh, question, query, observation I had, um, and, and I thank you for your time, is it is interesting to me, just an observation, I don't know, but Denisha is, hails from the state of Kentucky. I've lived near Kentucky. I've been through it several times. And I find it odd, you know, that the senator from Iowa, Senator Grassley, advocates on her behalf. But you haven't heard anything from any of the, the, the representatives or senators from her home state. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I, I, I can't find anything that any senator said, wait a minute, what's going on here? If, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong. I don't think you are. I, I just find that odd. Yeah, uh, I, 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 it's it's worse than odd. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example, and it concerns Grassley. When I was in uh, finished my second tour in Iraq, I had a unit of Iowa soldiers. They were uh, uh, cal cavalry uh, soldiers. We were working to get them awards, and we were running into a lot of resistance from the uh, chain of command. Uh, because they were National Guard and the the MP Brigade commander out of that same MP Brigade and Fort Bragg uh, that got busted for running drugs, he made he was making comments like, 
citizen soldiers don't need awards because they're only going to go back to their jobs at uh, Walmart. Well, what happened, I fought the fight working with the uh, chief of staff of the Iowa National Guard. But he, the chief of staff, and I knew we had an ace. We could bring Chuck Grassley into this fight at a moment. And uh, uh, as much as I admire Ray Odiano, uh, Ray Odiano uh, would have been explaining to Chuck Grassley this colonel's comments. As it turned out, we won the fight anyway. But it was great knowing we had an ace in the hole from Iowa that was going to fight for his people. Those senators and those Congress, uh, congressional representatives, they're elected representatives of those uh, people. And they should be representing the families of the deceased. I want answers as to why this is happening. One of my constituents, one of my constituents' families, one of mine, because they work for us. We right. elect them, but they work for us. It, it, it's just, it's something I want to follow up on. I just kind of want to get your take on this. And, you know, I, I just, I just want to say thank you for giving of your time. I think people needed to understand some of the deeper, uh, you know, goings on behind the scenes that aren't readily apparent and people want justice and you can understand that. And I feel every time I see a picture of Denisha's sons and, you know, her husband, I'm like, you know, we, 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 we failed. We did. We did. It's been a pleasure working with you, Travis. Well, sir, I'm I, I, sorry. I, I, I can't change habits. Habits die hard. Um, I, I've just, uh, it's been it's been uh great i'd like to have you back on as things progress uh and, and your other projects and just to talk about some of your leadership lessons i got on your website and i'll have that link in the oscar mike radio show post you can see some of his writings about leadership and what what you've done and and, and thank you for sharing with me travis always a pleasure well, again, I'm asked, and I am Travis with Oscar Mike Radio. We're mission flight on this. This is dropping December 12th, and, and hopefully it gives you some perspective about what's going on in remission mission flight. Thank you. I want to thank you for joining me and watching Oscar Mike Radio. Now go to OscarMikeRadio.com and click shop to check out all the cool merchandise from Authentically American. All proceeds go to veteran service organizations. We are mission in flight.